Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Alright, there we go. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of Bilge Pumps. Now, it's just me and Drac today because Jamie is instead of riding herd on his two probably theoretically adult English geeky I don't know do, do we consider ourselves in Bilge Pumps his children in this sort of thing because he keeps mm-hmm. the time is actually with his real children two very very sharp nerf gun shooters mm-hmm. um having Christmas holiday and we were of course planning on having a Bilge Pumps break but what do you know China well they're doing quite a lot of lovely stuff. The USA has announced it's going back to the past by reinventing the Desron from World War II. And, um, well, we just keep getting asked about the peacekeeping presence missions of navies and how that works. And so we thought we'd have a discussion of that. But let's start off with the Chinese and they are their lovely sea wing submarine drones, which keep getting found in Indonesia. Why would you be sending drones to Indonesia, Drac, underwater? Hmm. Well, one of the uh, theories is unlike the uh, the great deeps of the Western Pacific, where, well, let's put it this way. If you're encountering the seabed, even in a submarine something has gone horribly horribly wrong and you're probably already dead um over on the in in the area around indonesia and sort of that lovely passage that leads from china via indonesia towards australia most of that area the sub the submarine landscape is such that and the sea, sea depth is such that the seabed actually matters to de- day-to-day submarine operations as in you could run into it before you hit crush depth um, and there's promontories and atolls and islands and uncharted rocks and uncharted wrecks and all sorts of other wonderful things you might run into. So it's entirely possible that these kinds of uh, little wave glider things, I mean, they're not known for having the world's best sensor suites when it comes to things like spy on people. And they're not exactly quick either, so they're not going to be chasing down enemy submarines and ships. But what they are very good at is surveying. So I would say it's entirely possible that China is attempting to create a very, very, very detailed underwater map of this area of the seabed. For what nefarious purposes, we can only imagine. But one thing that does come to mind is uh, the idea of um, effectively an escape and evasion pattern uh, to avoid pursuit. So... Uh, as we've talked about, not on the build response, but um, in private, the US Navy published a number of papers a while ago, which talked about this idea of highly detailed, accurate charts of the seabed, allowing you to effectively set an autopilot and run your ship, as long as you know where you're starting from, or run your boat at very high speed through the terrain. When which... we say recently, this was mm. used by Tom Clancy to write one of his books. I think it's Red Storm Rising has it in, is it? Uh, either that or Hunt for the Red October. One of the two. Mm-hmm. And um, he ended up getting a visit from the US Navy who was asking him how he knew this and how why he was infringing on national security. 
And this was pre-internet being what it is. And he said, well, you publish these papers. <laughs> they just hoped no one was going to actually read them. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's, it is potentially a fairly major issue because, well, we don't know the exact capabilities of the latest Chinese subs, but from all the publicly available information, the current generation of Chinese subs are not exactly the world's quietest. So being able to evade pursuit by simply motoring on through an area where it's unsafe for a Western submarine to chase them because the Western sub doesn't have as accurate a chart does make a certain amount of sense. And before we start saying the Western sub definitely has or doesn't have as much accurate a chart, mm. you should also notice that which other Navy keeps sending, I don't know, vessels named either Enterprise or Echo to Southeast Asia? Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, it would so be... It would be one of the world's greatest ironies if they accidentally miss a World War Two wreck like whatever's left after the salvages have got through with the with the Prince of Wales and they end up mm. running into that. <laughs> that would be especially if they were trying to evade helicopters from HMS Prince of Wales the carrier at the time. That would mm. then be just the ultimate irony. Prince of yeah. Wales couldn't get you, don't worry. The fan uh, the Phantom Menace of Prince of Wales got you. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. But yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, the thing is, it's like, what else are you going to use a wave glider for in that area? As we said, they're, they're not quick. So even if, because of their small size and presumably quiet profile, even if they manage to infiltrate a carrier group or something, it's only going to be for a few minutes before they move on and you can't keep up. And likewise, they're not fast enough to keep up with nuclear powered subs. They, they don't really have a purpose spying on active military ships. The only real purpose is they have are either effectively semi-mobile listening posts, ocean survey work, or potentially sticking themselves off of various ports and stuff to monitor the amount and type of traffic. You see, at no point, one of the things that's come out of people that said, oh, they could be being used by civilian organisations. Well, if they're being used by a civilian organization for something legitimate, they go and claim them back. They're expensive. Yes, they're cheap in underwater, unmanned underwater vehicle terms, but they're still jolly expensive in terms of bank balance terms of an actual mm. company. And you'd think if it was being used for civilian, you'd put something on the back, like um, almost like a lost dog collar, like, if found, please call. Yes. Because presumably, if you get hooked up in the fishing nets of somebody, you that means whatever work you were trying to do, which presumably you're being paid for, or are hoping to sell the results of, is no longer being done. Mm. It does add a whole new grey war sphere, though. Mm. The war between the fishing boats and the unmanned underwater vehicles trying to survey... <laughs> the shore, mm. the, the oceans. And it, I mean, it's also one of the sort of the greater unnoticed elements of warfare in general, because when people say stealth, the first thing that comes to most people's minds are aircraft. Then for the naval historians amongst us, we probably think of 
the newer ships like the Type 45 and the Zumwalt that have been shaped for radar reduction. But ultimately, with the best will in the world, if you're putting something that's 10,000 plus tons in the water, you're not fully hiding it. <laughs> you might be able to partially hide it and reduce its apparent signature, but you're not going to hide something that size. No. Um, but submarines are the other great area of stealth. And of course, you have the advantage with subs of, well, they can be out an awful lot longer than aircraft can. And unless you're operating in some horrifically poor environment, like, say, the uh, coastal waters of the Mediterranean, the sea affords you near complete stealth from a visual perspective the moment you go below about 20 feet. Um, so the visual stealth spotting aspect, and you're definitely not going to spot anything on infrared in the middle of the world's biggest heat sink. Um, so those two That's methods... That's always which... fun. When people start telling me, you know what, submarines are going to get spotted by infrared satellites. <clears throat> yeah, and sure. Goes, well, maybe if they're on the surface, mm. you know? Yeah, and why would a nuclear sub be on the surface? You know, if they're in shallow water, mm. there's a potential. Um, so uh, submarine, Actually, the th really thing is that satellites, which are probably going to start causing trouble for submarines, mm. as we all know this and we've all been talking about this, are any satellites which focus on monitoring the currents of the Earth, of the water. Because guess what? When you have a rather large object going through the water, it does have an impact on the current. Mm, it creates not a swell a on the surface. Not a massive impact, but enough of an impact that if you run a computer model and you have a computer mm -hmm. model of what the current should be doing to compare it to, you can, well, send something like a P8 to go and have a look and go, Hello! Have some sonar boys. Oh, we hear you. Now we yeah. need to say a welcome, a really warm welcome. But it's a, uh, it's a very, it's, I think, in terms of counter stealth, it's a very much less developed field. Because oh, yes, for, for decades, the only real way to counter the stealth of submarines was passive sonar and if you were really really sure where they were you could go active but yeah but if you go active you are not and you don't find them you've just revealed your position yeah. to everything within the next million miles mm. and... so, uh, then someone goes why do you still carry active sonar then if you can't use it because when you really need it mm. you really read it because that means you're fairly sure the submarine is already close to you so there is no chance in stealth anymore. So you just kill it. Mm. And then you, and with the subs having those rubber sound absorbing tiles on the outside, that reduces the 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 range of the, the active the effective range of the active sonar. And then you've got the um, the passive sonar. Obviously, they'd counter that by having quieter reactors, quieter propellers, moving at slower speeds, etc. So. Yeah, there, there, there's certain stealth and counter stealth measures, but I don't think the sort of the non-direct counter stealth for looking for enemy subs is anywhere near as advanced in terms of generations of thought as the work that's been done for aircraft. No. The thing is, with submarines, they're a difficult asset. But also, and this is going to sound strange, we're going to... We will. Uh, this uh, the thing is with submarines. We'll probably come back to submarines when we're talking about presence and peacekeeping. 
because they are very good at war fighting. But I think both me and Drac agree that for presence and peacekeeping, there is a big a big problem. Mm. But we'll now move on to the U.S. Navy's counter to the Chinese submarines, which is they're reinventing the Desron. For those mm. listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, the destroyer squadrons from World War Two. Wasn't the LCS supposed to be taking us into a really modern super era that was going to be nothing like World War Two? Yeah, well, it's. I think it's, to be honest, I think it's one of those cases of, I mean, they've had destroyer squadrons around for a while, but the new the new way they're structuring them um, is, is all the thing. But I think one of the things that people always well, forget... Well, let's put it this way. The Desron went from being an attacking fighting unit to an administrative mm. unit. Yeah. Like a flotilla, effectively. Yeah. Um, but I, th- I think with... A lot of people seem to forget this. Like they, they look at World War Two and they go, "Oh yes, but the lessons of World War Two are now obsolete." It's like, no, the technology of World War Two is now obsolete. The methods of fighting and how you organise your fleets, etc., those haven't changed all that much since World War Two, at least as far as the effective ones go. Because especially by the end of World War Two. You have sonar, you have passive sonar, you have homing torpedoes, um, you have aircraft carriers, you have radar, you have counter-radar jammers, you have guided weapons, you have counter-guided weapon systems. Pretty much the only thing that you're missing from World War, the end of World War II in any significant big way is defensive surface-to-air missiles. Hmm. And unless you're dealing with a air threat that surface to air missile aspect probably doesn't actually matter all that much um unless you happen to be carrying standard missiles and are really short on a surface to surface weapon for some reason but broadly the lessons of how you organize your fleet especially when it comes to dealing with a submarine threat they've not really fundamentally changed it's just people like to pretend they have because then they can do something new and in, and interesting. But I think I mean, if you think about it, it's go through, if you go through the entire Cold War with the reforger convoys that were supposed to bring American troops and equipment to Europe, what were what were the Allies' plans, the NATO plans to get them across? It's pretty much a World War Two convoy, only slightly faster. Yep, because we knew it would work. Mm. And. It's uh, again. It's like if you want to, if you want to hunt down enemy units, the old attack attacking squadrons, flotillas, units, whatever particular the navy wants to call them, they're pretty much still going to be the same thing. And uh, yeah, yeah, and it also I think also the other thing is that we're beginning to see a little bit more and this also loops back to the presence and peacekeeping bit which we're going to talk about in a a minute but we're also beginning to see a bit more people appreciating that having units like the like a destroyer squadron which actually train together and stay together for a significant period of time is probably also a good idea because for a lot of a lot of the period during at least the last 20 to 30 years 
possibly going further back, although I wouldn't necessarily know with the modern era. There's been this, there seems to have been this great idea that you can just throw together a task force out of whatever ships you happen to have available and they should all work fine. But every time it's come to an actual conflict, either problems, yeah, you either have massive problems or you end up like with the Falklands with everyone doing mass amounts of crunch training to try and get themselves together as a unit on the way down. And even then, they have problems to a certain degree. But if you're going to end up in a fairly major conflict, you may not have the time for that. And any problems you might have, even after your crunch training, may be the things that allow you to lose ships. So having preset units rather than just saying, well, this this year, I don't know, Destroyer Squadron 7 is going to be made up of these ships. And next year it'll be made up of these ships. And the year after that will be made up of these completely different ships. Um it is perhaps a lot better to just just say, you know, this destroyer squadron is made up of these ships and it's overstrength for its given combat role because some of them are going to be in refit, repair, training, etc. And they're going to learn to fight together. They're going to learn to work together. And when they go to war, they're going to go to war together. Shock horror. Mm. No. And it makes sense when these things start to work together. Because honestly, let's be honest, the LCS was always, I felt, in my mind, was actually an attempt to reinvent a World War II era style destroyer small escort. In that they were supposed to work together with not every one of them carrying the full set of capabilities. So you'd have a balanced group made out of the whole, all the holes. And that seemed like a sensible way. In peacetime, they are enough to provide presence. In wartime, you know, they can wander around with their gun. In wartime, they're together. They act as an actual unit. That's, that's a theoretical logic. How they've actually implemented it hasn't actually worked that way. Now they're getting to that. And if you want to do anti-submarine warfare, you do want more than one ship. You want more than one towed array to try and tri triangulate the enemy. If you want to do complex escort, you want a couple of ships which are used to working together, which are familiar with each other, where the senior officers and the senior NCOs and the crews understand each other, so they have faith. So you don't have one ship going, oh, well, they're coming in that section, but do I trust that they, that other ship has spotted them, or do I need to start engaging them? So I'm worrying about engaging that one. Uh, I'm worrying about engaging one which isn't in my area, because I don't think that unit ship's competent, instead of watching my own bit. Mm. Because usually, and this again goes sound terrible, here's what happens most of the time when you have problems in task forces, and you've seen this in various wars, and I, I won't pick out individual ships, I will just say this. What happens is you have some ships operating together, and there is maybe a technical problem or something on one ship, which means it can't react as quick as it wants to, but it's fixing it. But the other ship doesn't have faith that that ship's going to get fixed in time. So they start doing random maneuvers. And that, that stops the other ship, the original ship, actually, once it has got everything working, being able to engage the target. So the target gets through and attacks. And it's no one's fault because what it is is an example of they haven't practiced together enough. This is one of the reasons why, if you look at the, the 
carrier task force that the British are building to send around the world, we've known the ships that have been involved in it for years. How have we known? Because the Royal Navy has been drilling those ships together for about the last three and a half, four years, non-stop. Basically, those ships go in and out of maintenance together. Every time the carrier's at sea, they're at sea with the carrier. It's it's almost as if the Royal Navy's decide, decided you're going to be the carrier escort group. All the other ships have to go off and do all the other missions, but you lot are the carrier escort group, and that's what you're going to be. And it works. It's not, it's not being financially unprudent or not getting value for money. And it's not stupid to send two ships when you can get away with one in peacetime. Because trust me, you do need those extra ones in wartime. And if they don't practice together in peacetime, you end up with a big problem. And again, if we go back to it, the one reason is the Royal Navy... <coughs> pardon me. The Japanese Navy <laughs> and the German Navy, uh, the Japanese Navy and the American Navy were quite as good as they were compared to the other navies in World War Two. When you look at their operating abilities, it's because they have huge fleet exercises they can conduct pre-war. The Italian Navy tries to conduct some exercises and they do get some done. But other ones, the Royal Navy ruins by driving a battleship straight through the middle of them. I'm sure it wasn't done on purpose. <laughs> I'm sure Admiral Cunningham and his four better predecessors would not have done that on purpose. HMS Warspite just felt like going in that direction. And you don't really stop it when it does. No. <clears throat> um, but these things, you know, they take a lot of practice. I, 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 I'm not sure what it is. But the amount of naval officers complaining about the Spanish Civil War and the deployments there because they're worried about the effect on operational capabilities of ships, which meant that the Royal Navy actually ended up calling up ships from the Naval Reserve and destroyers out of the Naval Reserve to do the patrols mm. and reserve flotilla. So the war fighting flotillas could keep doing their war operational practice. Mm, which probably could be one of the, uh, assuming they get en enough of the modules working, even if they leave them fixed in place, that could be the one hallmark of the LCS, at least until they get enough FFGX in to replace them, is that the kind of the showing the flag role, individual cruises, individual patrols, individual missions or random assignments that for a good chunk of the last few years have been the hallmark of the the burks you just see a burke everywhere the if the lcs can take over those roles at least then that means that if once you've assigned the burks to effect what's effectively a, a war fighting squadron they can actually stay there and if there is a well it's some the lcs reason... which is being assigned to these squadrons and the burks are still going to be doing the presence missions uh, yeah yeah, this is the thing. So you'll, you'll, you'll get a bunch of you'll get a bunch of active tar basically a bunch of gigantic active targets who know how to fight together, and the ships that can actually defend themselves have no clue how to fight together. Pretty much. Well, the the reason is, and I as I said, this is because they've realised the anti-submarine warfare they're developing. They're, mm. As I said, they're developing the Desron, and it's destroy role, and it's the destroy. The, the Burks have slipped up into what I would classify as a sort of 
light cruiser roll now. They're still technically small enough you could consider them a task force escort rather than a major, rather than, although they're often probably a principal asset as well. They're not a capital ship, but they do a lot of the presence mission. They do a lot of task force escorting and this sort of that stuff. And the LCS is going into the World War II destroyer role. Yeah. But you were hoping because I was saying it was a Desron, it was going to be yeah. the works, weren't you? Well, it's the thing that makes the most logical sense. <laughs> oh, track logic, please. Uh, bureaucracy but, uh, will get them every time. It's like there is, and don't take this wrong way, it's not just America which has had this scenario happen, but we, of course, recently the Capitol building. Mm. We're very sorry to hear some people that have lost their lives and very upset about, you know, they shouldn't have had to. That shouldn't have happened. But one of the things, the pictures I will remember, and a lot of the only picture which is stuck in my mind like this on previous occasion is the picture from 1920s Germany, where at a communist protest, someone shouts, Comrades, maintain revolutionary discipline. Keep off the grass. <laughs> And they also bought train tickets to go into to storm a station, that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if you've seen this picture. Have you seen the picture of them walking through the Capitol building, the Congress, uh, the Congress, uh, and they are keeping within the velvet ropes mm-hmm. of walkways? Yeah. Instead of going, you have just rioted and forced your way in here. And you're obeying the velvet ropes. Well, I can't. Yeah. Well, I mean, I suppose it means all the paint, the historic paintings and things that are hung on the walls. At least they didn't get burned, looted, and trashed. No. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah. Although <clears throat> I seem to remember, it's going to sound strange. I watched an episode of I don't know if you've seen Alpha House. Have you ever watched it? No. Now that had an active shooter scenario in it where. One of the more, how do I put this, Tea Party um, characters of the Senate decided to bring her gun into work and was pointing it at the Senate, uh, the Capitol Police, um, because they asked her to get to hand it over because you're not supposed to have a gun other than them in there. It ends with John Goodwin's character walking up and disarming her and calling her an idiot. Um, mm. He saw another senator and he just, he, he, he just walks up and goes, just give me that gun, you... Because mm. when he realises he's been trapped in his office for three hours because of one person holding a gun downstairs, he just goes full John Goodwin. Anyway, it's a sight to see. It's a good part, a good, a good thing. But... Um, Especially as the character, I think it's Peg Stanchion, is played by the same person who played Donna in The West Wing. So it's, you know, it's a really interesting role. But the thing I sort of thought in that, they showed a re- quite an accurate plan for how they were going to deal with an active shooter, and it was shelter in place. And they don't seem to have done that, because people seem to have got into Nancy Pelosi's office and things like that, so they must have cleared them out. Hmm. Which Although one would a, hope anything sensitive was encrypted. You don't know. The computers were left on. All sorts of things were left mm. unlocked. But A, I would think that's blooming brave because clearing people out and covering them in that sort of scenario is a 
freaking nightmare for anyone to attempt. Uh, it's on a par with trying to, I don't know, conduct a proper anti-submarine warfare exercise when you've got six ships which haven't ever worked together before. Mm. And that wasn't actually a joke. It was a sort of, if you're doing that for real life, if you're doing an anti-submarine warfare and you think you have a target coming in and it's real submarine, you've never worked together before, that is a really complicated scenario to try and manage. Well, this is a really complicated scenario. And they did well. But I'm, I'm still unsure about American security. Mm. It does make me worry about these things. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, although to be fair, getting, getting all the um, congressmen and senators and the associated staffers out of the way relatively quickly is still a fair feat of logistics, considering that, yeah. I mean, I've done stewarding and security at various large events and you can evacuate is surprising if if people are well ordered and you don't get a screaming and shoving match you can evacuate tens of thousands of people in very short order assuming you've got the capacity to get get keep them moving it's when panic sets in that actually everything slows down um but that is assuming that everyone can follow fairly clear obvious signs saying basically this way to exit and people who have entered the building or stadium or whatever they're kind of aware of which way is out because they came in in the first place whereas if you maybe come in your regular day entrance and suddenly there's a bunch of secret service people screaming at you to move and you're being taken down corridors that you've perhaps never been down and into areas of the building that you've perhaps never been in that can be uh, more than a little disconcerting and slow things down a fair bit. So the fact that they managed to get everyone safe is pretty impressive. Two things I need to add. One, it's an administrative one. If you are here at any point, hear me sort of slight giggle in my voice. It's because Drax's camera seems to be malfunctioning and he keeps doing flipping from one side to the other and it looks like he's doing jazz hands and dancing. <laughs> so if, if I start, if I have an inappropriate giggle, that's why. Secondly, it's also, and I've noticed from my own because I've done similar things to you in the past, Drac. It's what we do to earn our way through. If you're a certain size and a size and shape of male, you can usually get away with that as a job mm-hmm. to earn some money. When you're dealing with egos, that becomes a problem. You're, uh, I know you're saying screaming and panicking people, but also there is the egos, people who are used to being in charge. Mm. And don't get this the wrong way, but uh, I, I can imagine most members of the House of Representatives and the Senate, most congressmen and women are used to being in charge of whatever scenario they're in. Yeah, although, yeah, I suppose at the same time, it also depends if they've um, if they're in a scenario that's completely new to them and they they've never experienced it before. Well, that, that that's why you pay people like the secret service to be able to just take charge because <clears throat> i mean that's one of the other things to be perfect honest when it comes to mass crowd control and actually mm. this applies just as much human crowd control when you just got masses of people as much as it does to ships when you're at sea half of half of leadership is just being <laughs> able to assert yourself boldly sorry enough. demon drac uh, is starting again <laughs> yeah it's a, it's about being able to assert yourself boldly enough and loudly enough and quickly enough 
that um, people just kind of listen. <laughs> what one? What, what it's I hesitate to call it a herd mentality because I mean it kind of is, but that also has certain negative connotations which perhaps aren't necessarily appropriate. Especially um, not with the recent things with herd immunity. Yeah, but it is that kind of it is that kind of thing of once a someone who appears to be taking charge appear appears and starts making themselves known even a large number of people who are used to being in charge if they don't know what's going on usually kind of fall into line and it just cascades from there and everyone quietly follows the person who appears to know what they're doing um where you get the real problems or where you get the real egomaniacs who feel that they should be in charge of every single possible situation regardless of what is actually happening so me and you. Mm. Yeah, although in most emergency situations, yeah, I mean to be fair, I'd probably be fairly bad in if if I wasn't in a stewarding position or some kind of uh, role like that in an emergency situation. Because my my immediate thought in an emergency situation is, okay, what's causing the emergency and how do I kill it? Yes. Um... My usual thought is, oh, shut up, you egomaniac. <laughs> Get out the freaking door. Mm. And also, I, 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 I am blessed with two things. One, I am quite big. And two, I have quite a loud voice. <laughs> that usually means you take, that usually gives you an advantage in taking charge of any situation. Mm. I, I, but... I still remember I, the, um, I have uh, one record to my name, which mm -hmm. I am. Um, disturbingly proud of considering its insignificance in that I run a summer schools occasionally for a organization called Justin Craig and they're a level and GC revision for kids and they have all sorts of things oh and Drac check your Twitter for uh, Twitter feed and they're great but I have a record for evacuating my student halls faster than anyone else has ever done Apparently, I was so loud that the people on the third floor could hear me word for word enunciating exactly what they needed to do to get out of the building, despite the fire alarm. Mm. And they followed it. And also at that point, I found out that whilst all the students had followed my letter of advice on what to wear in terms of pajamas, two, it was good job I had some spare how do I put uh, spare? Um, what are those things? I don't wear one myself because I wear decent pajamas, but I always have them dressing gowns mm -hmm. for a couple of the stuff. <laughs> Fair enough. I don't know. Yeah. So, but, but actually, getting back to that, and that's yeah. all being put down to one of the things that's interesting is that being put down to, and this is why it links in with what we're talking about in terms of presence and peacekeeping is that policing is also a lot about presence. And one of the issues that's been put down for the capital, and the reason that it could have it's got as out of hand as possible, as it did, was because in contrast to some of the BLM protests and other protests that have happened recently, there was a decidedly low-key presence. Yeah, I, I've I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of remarks made about that. But I think I think to be honest, and again without trying to get into too many yeah. of the um too much of the political side of things which we want to avoid but i th i think some of the comparisons that are being made are a little bit disingenuous in as much as by the time the blm protests got to a point where they were outside 
the White House, etc., in Washington D.C. They'd been going for a while, so yeah. people had had an op- the law enforcement departments had had an opportunity to look at what was going on, what was the likely level of activity that was going to happen, how did they want to respond, and then they could make their choices based on that. Whereas this seems to have, again, by all accounts, seems to have been a rally which then degenerated into a let's reenact the War of 1812 except with the Capitol building instead of the White House, which no one was really planning for because I'm pretty sure on the list of on the list of activities when you've got the president speaking to a bunch of his supporters telling them to storm the capital probably wasn't on anybody's radar or certainly not very high on anyone's most plausible list of scenarios that's the trouble and how do you activate people in time plus they Mm. all came with guns and various other things Mm. so it's kind of fun uh it's just yeah oh you mean you see this in in london as well oh yeah fair. when 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 protests have been planned and advised and everyone knows what the score is people might not like the way they're handled by the police but they are handled where yes. you get the more spontaneous outbreaks of things like when we had the riots all the way back almost a decade ago now um when we had the various london riots those to be honest, the numbers of people involved were vastly, vastly less, and they were vastly less well organized, but they accomplished an awful lot more in terms of destruction and and general disorder, simply because it was a completely, well, not completely spur of the moment, but effectively, as far as strategic planning goes, spur of the moment thing, which the police just flat out weren't ready for. Mm. And, and, we, and we live in, and to be perfectly honest, we live in a country in the UK where if things got properly out of order it would take five a five minute call from or less from the prime minister to get the army out on the streets to put things back very much back in order whereas in the states for various reasons it it takes a while to get the national guard involved and if they actually want to get the the full-on armed forces involved that's that's basically got to be an end of the world scenario as far as they're concerned to be fair the, the army would probably just come in as a sort of backup to the police and we're just sort of be doing we're here we don't really want to be here we prefer not being here but you guys are being really really annoying mm. i think and it's there's probably also a certain amount of uh there's probably a certain amount of disparity of force because let's let's face it for whatever the ins and outs and whatever individual opinions might be on America's gun ownership, the simple fact of the matter is, as you pointed out, in an American protest, a large number of people can turn up with a large number of firearms, which means that even if you have a, even if you have several dozen or several hundred fully armored, fully equipped riot police and SWAT teams, the disparity of force is still not necessarily as great as you might imagine, or as definitely as much as they might want. Whereas in the UK, if you have a protest, um, well, the riot police go in with sticks and shields because, and they've still got a, mostly a preponderance of force. And if you ever got CQ19 or um, any of the other specialists or the army show up on the streets, uh, I don't think there's been a riot in over a century in the UK that could even come close to matching the level of firepower that have- they have. 
they also have horses and attack dogs, mm. which tend to be fairly effective. Have you ever seen them? Yeah. The, 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 the dogs, the police dogs. Yeah. And uh, what's funny is I, I know several people who do the training of the police dogs. Mm. And at home, the police dogs are lovely. I have rolled on the floor and been licked by them and play with them and have lots of fun playing with them. And, you know, they're, they're just normal dogs in many ways. And then on the streets, they give them the command and they are barking and making a noise. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm not that scared of you because earlier I was playing and you were basically playing tug on the ball and just smiling at me and wagging your tail. But I can see why someone who hasn't met you before would be freaking terrified at this moment. But again, they're, effect they're effective force multipliers because the level of overall force at to start with is relatively low. Yeah. They're not going to be as effective in a, a situation like the US where a potential riot protest, whatever you want to call it, could and potentially turn into a very, very heavily armed firefight in short order. This is where presence turns <clears throat> into deterrence. And this <clears throat> is why presence and peacekeeping and policing go together. Because all basically are based on, to an extent, a level of deterrence and presence. And to be honest, the ability to deploy overwhelming force if necessary. That's how you can enforce it. But I, I will sort of, it, it, it's one of those interesting things when we're talking about it and we're talking about presence and it, it, most people don't find it strange when naval historians start talking and they go, why do you know about policing? Because it filters into quite a lot of the presence and the deterrence and the peacekeeping roles, which we have to look at. for ship. So we're not experts on policing. We don't, we never claim that. But we learn about it because it's one of those references which, when we're talking to an audience, they can easily understand. If I start explaining to someone, well, a sloop goes around and it's doing port visits and it's saying hello as part of a presence mission, they're going, well, what's it achieving? What's it, isn't that a waste of money? And then I go, right, so you've got your local policeman walks down the street and chats with the shop owners just wanders along, is part of the community. Is that effective policing? Yes. Well, basically, your sloop wandering around and popping into each port and saying hello and making friends with local community is the international government version of your Bobby on the Beat. Does that, you know, do you agree with that, yeah. Jack? Yeah, and th uh, this is actually one of the things that one of the things I've discussed with a few people on, on my channel Discord as well at various lengths, which is that when it comes to peacekeeping and presence, you actually want to go relatively small. Because if you send... The problem with sending in a big ship or a large amount of force, like a, a flotilla or a squadron, is that it can be read as a threat. Mm -hmm. which may escalate the tensions rather than de-escalating them. And ultimately, the point of presence missions is to keep things peaceful, not make everyone annoyed with you. But also, if it there is a small chance it will intimidate people into submission. But there's also every chance, especially if it's if the overall level of force disparity is quite large, that the small organization, group, nation, whatever might 
actually begin to overestimate and get overconfident in what they can and can't do because if you're a big power if you have all the car if you hold all the cards and you've got some small group or whatever that's annoying you and you send in a battleship a first rate a squadron of third rates a carrier depending on the era they're going to think you're taking them seriously and if they think you're taking them seriously, then they're going to think, oh, actually, we're actually a threat. And if they're taking us this seriously, then we don't have to do that much more work to get big enough to a point where they can't touch us. And then they kick off and then everything goes south very, very quickly. Um, whereas if you send a sloop, a gunboat, a corvette. A Type and, 31. Yeah, a Type 31, an LCS or whatever what you're effectively saying is, as the larger powers yes we have noticed you yes we don't like what you're doing but we're just here to remind you to knock it off and yes maybe this ship can't do all that much but it can still do a fair bit of damage to you because we we think this is proportional and that uh, that apart from anything puts people in their place somewhat because if the if a naval power has sent a corvette or something to deal with you then well obviously they don't really think to all that much of you which might cause you to reevaluate your own position a bit um and it, it's more the implied threat of yeah and and maybe maybe just maybe depending on who you are you might be able to deal with this particular ship but if you do there is the implicit threat of a lot of much bigger, nastier ships showing up, and you don't really want that. So leave... that's how you usually balance it, because usually it's mm. a once a year visit by a bigger ship going by, going, "Hello, we're here. We've come to check up on you. Yeah. We've come to say hi. We're the big ship coming around, and it's a regular visit by a smaller ship. Mm. Yeah, and the usually... smaller ship might meet, uh, meet visit every other month." And a keep lot, up relations. Yeah, and a lot of the time, the the bigger ship might not even visit the port of the people that you want to deter. I'm thinking no. of thinking of things like in the in the interwar period when you had um, Hood, and I think it was I can't remember. I can never remember whether it was Repulse or Renown, one of the two. Um, but you had the, the Hood and one of the Renowns on the world tour. I and, think it was Renown, but I'm not sure yeah. why. But when they went round the world, you notice that where they went was they went and visited places like Australia and such, all the friendly ports. So they were like, yes, hello, Australia, you are our friend. But yes, we're here to show you the the, uh, the pride of our fleet, just to re sort of reassure you that, yes, we can defend you. And these are the big things that we've got to defend you. So all that is well will come out if you're in trouble. Yes. Yeah. They didn't go and visit all the trouble spots with the big battle cruisers. But the trouble spots knew that they were in the vicinity and they mm -hmm. could go and have a look at them. And you can bet there were more than a few prying eyes keeping an eye on them in various ports. But that is that was by far more of a deterrent because it was a case of, yes, the Royal Navy is here. It has these large ships, but these large ships are just incidentally passing through saying hi to their friends. They're not bothered with you, but they could be bothered with you if you annoy their smaller friends who are actually keeping an eye on you. Basically, it's a case of 
Uh, it, it's the uh, don't bully me. Uh, don't b- bully me because my big mate at the other school will come beat you up method of um, psychology. Mm. Yeah. Or if you go to, back to the policing ring, the reason you don't want to beat up the Bobby on the beat or attack mm. the Bobby on the beat is because the area car or the rapid response van will turn up and that will have a squad of 12 or so policemen in it who will get out and, well, they wouldn't duff you up, of course. They would very politely arrest you in the UK. But, um, but yeah, and I think this is the thing when it comes to deterrence. The, the, the successful deterrence has always involved you keep an eye on the, small, on, on the trouble spots and the people you want to deter with the small stuff. And you make it very understated. And the the few times you ever need to make a, a proper point, i.e. when you go from presence to active deterrence, it's kind of a zero to ten um, instantly with nothing in the middle. Because, again, if you if you send, well, let's say if you're in the interwar period, if you send a cruiser squadron, with a bat maybe with a battleship or a cruiser squadron and a couple of destroyer flotillas an enemy who looks at that might go oh right well now they're taking us seriously but this is their response but we can beat this response force or we can come close to beating this response force and maybe we just need a bit of work to do so and if you're talking about presence and deterrence missions between major powers then it, since it's their home turf, they can just turn up with an even bigger force. I mean, if you turn up with uh, a cruiser squadron and two destroyer flotillas off the Japanese coast in the mid-1930s, the Japanese will just send out four Sentai of cruisers and eight of destroyers, and they'll be like, yes, yes, your force is very impressive. Look at ours. It's so much bigger than yours. And the whole thing has failed. In fact, if anything, you've just boosted their ego. So what you do is instead of that, it's if you're going to do a show of force you do a full-on uh, here is everything yes we are not showing up for any particular reason but we're just here and there's absolutely nothing we're having to do a deployment it. exercise yes like what the royal uh, navy did in the mediterranean where they scared everyone else out out of it for a few weeks yeah you know the the inter the interwar period and serious periods are actually listed with this because what you do is you have your sloop popping around and then you have your light cruiser or protected cruiser, whatever it is it's going to be. Um, we'll pop around, we'll be in the we'll be on the area station and that will turn up and go hello occasionally uh, slightly less often. And if a problem comes up which they're saying hello hasn't deterred, then something bigger will turn up and try and say hello. And you'll slowly graduate up. But if you're dealing with a very major power, your options are you send something bigger to say hello or you send everything to say hello. Now, again, if we go back to the round the world tour of a couple of battle cruisers, two of the late, uh, several of the latest cruisers and picking up on occasion destroyers as they went, that the Royal Navy did in the interwar, uh, interwar period. That was kind of the Royal Navy announcing to the world we're back after World War One. Oh, I've got a video of this. Sorry. You are... I, I, I might, if Drac ever allows it, actually post these videos to the world so they can see what I am seeing. Oh, I dance again. 
yes, you are dancing, and it is full disco. <laughs> I might try and turn the light on. It maybe it maybe the camera's having problems picking me up that way. Give me a sec. <laughs> there you go. Have I stopped dancing? Now you've gone blotchy. Hmm. Well, hopefully that'll correct itself in a minute. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah, I mean, bringing that up to the present day, since we started off talking about Chinese wave gliders, my sort of my suggestion for the U.S. Navy would actually be that you want to use LCS units as your presence ships because well let's face it you don't have anything there's not really anything smaller that you're going to send transoceanic so but yeah you turn up and watch chinese exercises or trail chinese ships or wander through the south china sea on various um what are they called the effectively the seaborne version public rights of way right of freedom navigation of that's it freedom freedom of navigation exercises yeah doing with single lcs because it's a what you're saying at that point is yes the u.s navy has seen what you're doing and this is what we feel is appropriate to monitor the situation and that's it you don't it's it's an expression of strength because you don't feel you need anything more and if you decide that actually we need to put on a big show and remind everyone not to mess with us that's when you get three or four carriers and all their escorts and sail on through maybe with a bunch of friends if you can as well um because that that is that is impressive that will remind people who they're dealing with the problem with the intermediate is to send four burks or a single carrier group or whatever china's just going to look at that and go we can beat those and mm. That that that's all they'll that's literally all they'll be thinking about. Okay, well, if if everything goes south in the, in this particular scenario, we can be we can win against that. That's fine. We don't care. Deter and then at which point your deterrence has failed. Um, you you need to be able you need to have that capability of either there is there, it is so blatantly obvious that the force that you've sent cannot hold its own that you're effectively saying. We don't expect this to go hot because you're not that stupid. And if it does, you're not, we're, we're not we're not going to lose anything particularly, but we will come back and avenge it. Where or you turn up with the if you start anything in any way, shape or form, you will instantly lose this this fight. The in, this the fight in will be over before you even force it through. Yeah, the the in between is is the ineffective bit i mean it, to be a perfect honest i mean it's kind of like the um much as you might want to, some people might not like it. it's like if you reduce it to the level of of not street brawls but sort of street thugs and people trying to shake each other down for money um in the dead of night it's the same kind of thing if somebody just comes in with six guys and says right give me your wallet you give you you give them your wallet because you know you don't have a chance. If somebody comes up on their own, very nonchalant, and just says, you, you, you want to give me your wallet, you worry. Because why are they that confident? 
if you have somebody who walks up and starts doing that, oh, that's what kind of that whole thing in your face. Oh, you want to fight? You want to fight, mate? Rah, 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 and dances around you for 30 seconds trying to get you to throw the first punch. You very rapidly become much less worried about them because there's there's a reason they're not going one way or the other. They don't have the confidence to be quiet and understated, and they don't have the backup to come in with overwhelming force, at which point you think, actually, there's probably not a lot behind this show. And at that point, you either sweep their legs from underneath them or knock them out. Mm. Although well, yeah. me and me and Jack would never advise violence, <laughs> of course, and neither of us would no. ever do such a thing. No, well, we are British, so, I mean, sarcasm well, and a cutting wit. We're very polite. We we don't have an entire... but Well, other nations have developed various forms of self-defence and pugilism or martial arts. Britain just has developed a series of things called a friendly hello. Yeah, I mean, as as Garrick said in, in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, it's like, Dr. Bones will heal, but some of the cutting remarks I got off will last with them for a lifetime. Always <laughs> <laughs> oh. that effect. Also, Garrick, a completely underappreciated uh, character. Yes, he was. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's I suppose that's presence, presence and deterrence all in one thing. Although that, that there, there is obviously the side issue, which I suspect we'll talk about on another day of how you can use presence missions to generate goodwill, because that's probably the one time you do want to deploy relative sort of what I would call middle middling forces, not overwhelming, but also not you know, effectively your modern well, that, gunfire. Well, uh, you see, I, I used to say. Uh, the... I usually use the point that when a sloop comes to visit, it can host a small party, but mainly mm. people go out and visit the parties. When a cruiser came to visit, it would host the parties. Mm-hmm. And that was the thing. That was how it generated the goodwill. It had British goods on board. It gave people lovely food, lot of large amounts of alcohol. This is the Royal Navy we're talking about. Large amounts of alcohol. Mm. The French turn up with wine, the British turn up with whiskey, rum, every single drink, spirit and drink under the sun. <laughs> it's not a case of, please try a wine, it's a case of, please try the bar. <laughs> and it worked. Mm. Yeah, and that, that sort of comes under the, I mean, we've talked about it before, the ability to use things like L, uh, LHAs, LA, whatever, the landing LCHs. LHB. LHDs, whatever whatever LH variant you want to, or LC variant you want to use, but that those are the kinds of things, goodwill missions, disaster relief, we've talked about that before, but that, that's another kind of presence. Yeah. Having something turn up, it's, you know, it, 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 it's the thing is, how much, how much goodwill did the Royal Navy in Britain manage to generate in the Caribbean by having... A bay class there, and I think there's one Caribbean nation which has recently decided it's it, considering leaving the Commonwealth and getting rid of the Queen as its um, head of state due to various reasons are considered. But let's just say it's part of the long decolonization process going on, um, or getting or getting out of the colonial era. And one of the interesting things has been raised by some of the people who are against them doing that are. Well, if we do that, does that mean the Royal Navy will still come and help us out in the hurricane season, or will they prioritise the 
Commonwealth nations and the nations where the Queen is the head of state. And that's quite a tough one because honestly, I would love to say the Royal Navy will go where it's hurt worst. But probably if there's a Commonwealth nation which is hit and a non-Commonwealth nation which is hit, and both are about equally worse, you have a sneaking suspicion that Britain might well at least prioritise to an extent the Commonwealth nation. Yeah, and apart from anything, those nations will probably have better communications with the UK, so they'll be the first people to ask for help. And yeah, let's let's face it, harsh as it might sound, when you are looking at massive disasters like the semi-regular very nasty hurricanes you get in that kind of region um there's never enough help to go around no so the help that gets dished out is usually on a first come first serve basis and if you've still got the hotline to the people who are providing the help then you're going to get the help and if you've distanced yourself and have to go through the regular channels you're unfortunately going to be at the back of the queue most of the time yeah it's one of the things which you don't necessarily it's one of those interesting things people don't necessarily think about when they're talking about these debates and it was uh, it was rather interesting when i saw the article and went i hadn't really thought about it from that perspective myself i was just sort of looking at it going well they're a country which is seeking to make a partnership with the new upcoming power and they think that Britain's gone because that seemed to be what it is to me but um, we'll leave that to one side I'm not sure if it's sensible for them to make a partnership with that particular upcoming power considering what's currently going on in that again if we go back to America uh, that seems to be fairly bipartisan worrying about China at the moment mm. and needing to work <laughs> on the presence mission etc so a Caribbean country following deciding to get close to the major power who America isn't keen on. I, I can't think of any precedent where that um, has happened before. Can you think of one, Jack? Hmm. Didn't exactly go well for that country or for the major power. And that yeah. was when they had a lot easier connection than going through the Panama Canal. Yeah, it's well... As, as as the old cartoon says, those who do not pay attention to history are doomed to repeat it, and those who do pay attention to history are doomed to sit by and watch. <laughs> Bill Trump's triumvirate? Mm. Yeah. Trouble is, do we stop with the planet Earth, or do we go on for the entire universe? Yeah. Honestly, you know, we could have fun. Yeah, well, mm. I, I'm still loving that. Um, um, this is a completely random one, but if anyone has read the most recent version of Empire Rising by DJ Holmes, the most recent book in the series, book 10, I won't spoil anything if I say this. The Spitfire in there is a heavy attack fighter, the Lancaster is the attack bomber, these are launching from space carriers, and the Corsair is the light anti-fighter fighter. 
Now, let's think about that in relation to history, shall we? <laughs> I think things are sli- slightly the wrong way around, but never mind. Oh, <laughs> oh I, did, I, I was reading it sort of going, you're sending in Lancaster bombers, Spitfire fighters, and Corsair interceptors. There, you, you need to change this around a bit. Uh, well, we've both got places to be at three. Yeah, so... so. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed this. And that was Bilge Pumps 32. With some editing to be done. <laughs> yes. And Drac is again dancing. I have no idea what's going on. I, I mean, that. he's doing it. You can't see it, but apparently it's very amusing. It is. I, 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 I've got many videos of it. <laughs> you you turn one into a GIF. We could do. I've got to do this one. I've turned this one into a gift, definitely, at some point. Oh, he stopped as I started recording. (laughs) Oh, well. That was cruel. All right. Take care. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.